I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn them to Acts chapter 2, if you would, please. The book of Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you would turn there, that'd be great in your Bible. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can take the one in the pew ahead of you, and you'll find it on page 1092 in your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, please feel free to take that one that is there. We would love for you to take that as our gift. You can have that um, as a gift from our uh, congregation. Two things before I actually read the text that I want to mention. First of all, uh, if you listen to the weather forecast, uh, Armageddon is coming this evening, apparently. Uh, they are predicting some pretty severe thunderstorms, uh, and it makes us wonder about the baptism service that we're going to have. The two things, though, that make uh, any sort of decision difficult. One, these storms are extremely hard to predict. It could pour in Colombia and uh, not here at all. Of course, we're not going to pour it all anyway, but uh, it's not, it could, um, <laughs> then, uh, <laughs> oh, anyway, where was I going with that? Or the other problem is these storms come and they're over very fast. So, um, well, we're going to meet, we're going to, we're going to go for it. And uh, our baptism service starts at six. And again, the Straub's house is very close. It's just over this hill. Um, and, um, we're looking forward to that this evening. The second thing I want to mention is it's a, it isn't a tremendous privilege. We turn to this book in, uh, of Acts in the Bible, and Acts chapter 1 says, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all over the world. And this morning as we gather, we pray for Hannah, who's going to Morocco, and we welcome back Dan, who's serving in Haiti, and we have members of our congregation who are in Germany and in Japan. It's a, it's a tremendous privilege to be a part of this congregation. Yesterday at the church uh, picnic, Jim and Helen Lehman were there who are serving Christ in uh, Boston. So it's just it's a tremendous privilege to be part of this congregation and to think about these issues from this book as we have people we know and love all over the world. I want to read from Acts 2, 42 to 47 as we begin. And you'll remember this is the final scene on this day of Pentecost the Spirit has been poured out in the first few verses. The people spoke in tongues. They, uh, uh, there was a sound of wind. There was a sight of fire. Peter stood and preached this wonderful message about how the pouring out of the Spirit is a sign that Jesus is the exalted Lord. And then he told the people what, should they, what they should do. They should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and now we see this final chapter. Luke is showing us what a difference the Spirit makes in their lives. Follow along, Acts 2, 42 to 47. They, that is these followers of Christ, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Uh, Mark Twain, that uh, American author, had some unorthodox views of the Bible. In fact, he was aware that they were so heretical and blasphemous that he mandated in his will that his autobiography, the complete autobiography, not be released until a hundred years after he was after he had died. Uh, actually, just it just parts of it just were released within the last five years. 
And, and Twain's skepticism doesn't come from unfamiliarity with the Bible. Huh. It's not hard to find people who disagree with the Bible who don't actually know what the Bible says. But Mark Twain had actually read the Bible and considered it, and I think that, inf- that exposure to it, that knowledge of it is evident in something he said about the Bible that might very well apply to this passage. Listen to what Mark Twain said. You, you probably heard this. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. Isn't that true? Uh, Again, I don't know what specific passages he might have had in mind, but it easily could have been this paragraph that I just read. There, There are some sentences in this paragraph that need to be unpacked a little bit, but the great problem here is not understanding what this text says, but applying what this text says. We have here, at the end of this chapter, a summary describing what life was like for these 3,120 followers of Jesus. What a difference the Spirit made in their lives. Um, How did their lives change because the Spirit had been poured out by the exalted Savior, Jesus Christ? I want you to imagine for just a minute that you're getting acquainted with somebody, someone maybe they moved into your neighborhood or they're a new friend, um, and uh, maybe they, 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 they notice, in particular, this new neighbor. <laughs> if you live in Manor Township, why would anybody ever move in or out, right? But that's, this person moves in, and uh, they say to you, hey, I see you on, on Sunday. You, 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 you're, you go to church. What's that church all about? What do, what do you do when you go there? Why do you go? That's a good question. And one, you might answer on a great day by thinking or echoing or paraphrasing what's in this paragraph that we just read. Actually, do you remember that that's what the book of Acts is? Remember, uh, Acts is part of a two-volume work that Luke wrote to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus was some sort of, it appears, government official who had become a follower of Jesus. He had heard this similar message that Peter had preached. He had repented. He had been baptized. He was a Christian. But he had a lot of questions about what, what are the full implications? What does this really mean that I'm a follower of Jesus? What, is, what does this mean for this organization, this group, this, this church? And this summary paragraph helps us by showing what the Spirit of God does. On the basis of the work of Christ, the Spirit of God unites believers together in a community, most often called the church, or to borrow Paul's favorite word, the body of Christ. Now, you're, you're familiar with, with things like this before, that your allegiance to someone else might have, might have horizontal implications. Do you remember, uh, some of you are old enough to remember the, the heyday of fan clubs? Remember the heyday of fan clubs? Uh, I never belonged to a fan club. They were fading significantly in popularity when I was a child. But it, uh, way back when, you could uh, find a fan club that was uh, form- uh, formed around your favorite singer or your favorite actor or actress, and you would, would join the club. And occasionally, club members would get together, and there would be certain privileges or certain responsibilities, maybe a, a newsletter. or you, you, With your, cl- your fan club membership, you were sure to get an autographed copy, uh, uh, autographed picture of your, your uh, favorite uh, actor or uh, actress. Uh, fan clubs were, were like joining a Facebook group, except it involved real people and real money often. That's how that worked. 
There was, there was this association with other people because of your fandom. Oh, there, there are informal ways that, that we form uh, attachments to other people. If you're at a baseball game and, and it's a significant game or you see a particular run or a particular play... Uh, that's just amazing, and you're there, you, you have that experience of joining in that, that joy with all those other people there. You experience that same anxiety at the beginning of the game before the first pitch, and you have that same joy when the run is scored that's going to win the game. And, and for the rest of your life, actually, if you meet someone who was there, you have that in common with them. You've bonded with them about your, your fandom, that you saw that same thing with them. You were there. I can imagine that the men and women who were at the 2008 Democratic Convention in Denver, Colorado... That night that Barack Obama accepted the nomination of his party to be president of the United States, that was a momentous occasion. You remember, I'm sure, what that was like. <laughs> remember at, at the end of it, they, they took poor Oprah out. She was so overcome, the woman was weeping. She was just so excited to be there. This experience bounds or bonded the, the people together. I know he's not very popular, but, but you know what sort of feeling that must have been that night in, in Denver. What's here before us, we see a connection between these people that is formed that's not merely historical, I was there and I saw it, or not merely sentimental, but one that is tangible, it's real, it's formed by the Holy Spirit himself. Paul says the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ. We're members of the body. Just like your body, you have one body with many members, Paul says. So the body of Christ is one and it has many, many parts. It has feet and toes and ears and eyes and a nose. And, and you're like members. We are like members of a body. The Spirit comes. He's poured out. Miraculous speech happens. Peter's empowered to preach. 3,000 people are convicted of their sins and turned to Jesus. And the Spirit, that same Spirit, unifies or forms this community here in this text. And that's what I want to look at. I want to think about what this unity, what this community looks like. Um, you, you might know the name John Stott. John Stott was a British pastor. He died a couple of years ago. And uh, he was... Uh, known in his preaching for his exceptional clarity. If you ever read a book by John Stott, it will be just very, very clear. I'm, I stole John Stott's outline. So I'm going to use, I didn't ask permission. I'm just going to use John Stott's outline. I ha, he has some good ha, uh, hooks to hang your thoughts on. I have lots of things I want to say this morning, but these main points are John Stott's. And what's helpful about him is I think he so well summarizes these four, four characteristics that mark this spirit-formed community. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Here's characteristic number one. This is a learning church. It's a learning church. The text says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the teaching that the apostles were doing. Now, there are some people, there's not very many of them around, but there are some people who say that if you have the Spirit of God, you don't need teaching, you don't need other people to teach you anything because you have the Spirit of God. Well, that certainly was not true in the first century. Uh, actually, this is the way it has always been with God's people. 
We show our strength most clearly and we are the most vulnerable in keeping with our attention to God's word. This week I listened to a lecture by Greg Beale and he was talking about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, he says, had two commands from God to obey. We have these thousand page books. Adam and Eve had two commands. And they were so apparently unfamiliar or lacked so much confidence in them that when they were pushed by the serpent in temptation about God's word, of which there were two commands, they completely folded. Um, Beale also described a young woman that he knew who had uh, attended Sunday school her whole life faithfully. She, in fact, had perfect attendance from the time she was in kindergarten to the time she was a senior in high school. You know what that means, of course, if you've been around Sunday school for a long time. She had the pin with all the bars for all of her perfect attendance. She had a railroad track going up her blouse every Sunday because of her perfect attendance in Sunday school. Beale said she, she grew up she, uh, going to church. She got married. She and her husband moved into an apartment. One day, some uh, members of a religious group that don't believe that Jesus is God's son stopped at her house. And they spoke to her for 15 minutes. And they captured her heart and her mind. And she still, to this day, is a Jehovah's Witness. And Greg Beale says, what happened? What happened to her? She had 13 years of perfect Sunday school attendance, and, and she, she blew over like a weed in a, in a cool summer breeze. Now, this teaching that's happening here in Acts chapter 2 has a particular flavor. It's teaching from the apostles. It's teaching about Jesus. These were 3,000 believers whose one request was, we want to know about Jesus. Tell us more about Jesus. Um, Tell us what he did, what he said. How did he react to various situations? What did he teach you? I think here we have in these days the formation of what will be the New Testament. This is the first time they're not right now. These apostles are not writing things down. But this is the first time that they're organizing and they're teaching Jesus Uh, words and their teaching about Jesus acts This is the first time that they're repeating for people the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the first time they're telling to people how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This is when they're rehearsing those stories that and sermons that will eventually be written down in the New Testament. And I actually think they're also fulfilling the commission that the Lord gave them. Remember Matthew 28, what did Jesus say to them? All power is given under heaven and earth to me. And so I'm telling you, go and make disciples. How are you supposed to make disciples? Two ways. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, secondly, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And this is exactly what they're doing, isn't it? They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Teaching everything I have commanded you. Now, this teaching took place formally, that it was in the temple, because that's where they were gathering. Uh, You'll remember, we we talked about this, mm, I don't know how long ago, several months probably, about Herod's temple, the temple that was in Jerusalem in Jesus' day and and here. Uh, It was a huge complex, about 35 acres this temple would be. Our property, our church property, is about five acres, so this This temple complex was just massive in size. And around it was a a portico that was called Solomon's uh, Colonnade. And it would have been big enough, wide enough, 
for these believers to gather in, at one time for official teaching and preaching from the apostles. So it happened both formally and then it was also informal. It seems the text indicates they met together from house to house. They were with one another. Now, we do teaching like this, don't we? That we endeavor, it's our endeavor on Sunday mornings and in Sunday school and in growth groups or glimpse Bible studies to learn together. Formally and informally, we study the teachings of Jesus. That's what we do when we meet together. It's a learning church. Now, secondly here, and we're going to spend a long time on this one, this is a loving church. This is a loving church. Acts 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, the word fellowship means a sharing. Uh, Maybe your experience is the same as mine. If you grew up in a a church, fellowship meant having punch and cookies after church. And you went to a a room, usually with linoleum floors, uh, called the fellowship hall. And the service would end and all of us children would run as fast as we could because we wanted the best selection. We did not want to wait in line. And inevitably there was someone standing behind the table who would say to us, two, you may have two cookies, two cookies, that is it. The grace of God is boundless and free, but at fellowship time you can have two. That's the way it is. But the word fellowship actually uh, means a lot more than punch and, and cookies. It's, it's more than just sharing polite conversation after a meeting. They, they shared their lives together. That, that's clear in verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, here's that one or two sentences in this paragraph that needs to be unpacked a little bit. Um, I once visited a college. I was interested in attending this school. I went to a biology class, and for some reason, I'm not sure why, the biology professor had this text in his mind, and he was talking to the class, and he said, based on this passage, which is more Christian, capitalism or communism? This was the early 90s. Maybe I've, maybe I've raised an issue that's a little too far in the past, but Richard Weber is a commentary, uh, commentarian, and, and he wrote about this text, and he says, uh, this is a passage that tells us about the communism of love, communal property, mutual sharing, the abandonment, so he argues, of personal or private concerns. There's no profit motive here. There's just generosity. I think, though, that overreads a little bit what's in the text. I don't want to underread what's in the text. I don't want to overread it either. There's some things that you should see here. This is, at best, a temporary situation. It didn't last, either because it could not last or because it just didn't, because in Acts chapter 8, they're going to be persecuted and these 3,000 people are going to be spread all over the world. It's a temporary situation. I think what's happening here is that there were some of these early Christians who had turned to Jesus, and because they had turned to Jesus, their faithful Jewish families had said to them, who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, had said to them, get out of our house. You are dead to us. And these new converts had no place to go, no source of income. What were they going to do? 
Or it's, it's possible, too, I think, that, that there were pilgrims, remember, that had come to Jerusalem for the festival, and um, they had become followers of Jesus, and they were sticking around a little bit longer than they had planned, than they had budgeted for, so that they could learn more from the apostles before they went home. And again, where are they going to stay? They don't have any money to pay for a room, and who's going to feed them? I, I, this seems to be a, somewhat of a temporary situation. Second, you should notice that this is not mandatory. Um, the people chose to, ser- to sell their property. Later in Acts chapter 5, we're going to read about Ananias and Sapphira, that story of, of two people who they sold their property and they came and they, they lied about it. They said, oh, this is all the money we got for our property. And the apostles said, why are you bothering to lie? Your house is yours to do with what you want. You do with what, your land, what you want. This is not a demand. It's not mandatory. It's voluntary. Then you should see that this giving and selling, I don't think, was, either, was total either. Some people kept their houses. Isn't that evident here? They broke bread in their homes. Well, whose house was it if they'd already sold all their houses? It's not total. It's not, it's not complete. Some people didn't sell everything they owned. Now, I've been talking about why this is not communism. Let, let's think a little bit more even just so positively about what's going on here. What is happening? Joyful generosity is what's happening. Look what verse 46 says. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad, with joy, with glad and sincere hearts. It's an unusual phrase, that phrase sincere hearts. It's unusual in the New Testament. There was joy that they had with one another and there was singleness of mind. They met together and they had joy with one another. They weren't envious. They weren't jealous. Um, nobody was walking into a house and saying, wow, I wish they'd sell it and give some of the money to me. There was no self-righteousness. <laughs> I fed you yesterday. I've got to feed you again today. Why don't you go get a job? There was no greed. There was no power. There was, there was just generous joy. They didn't demand what should be sold. They didn't condemn people over it or over not selling. There was generous joy. And actually, I think this verse helps us understand what's wrong. One of the problems with communism, communism as it has been practiced in our world, works from the outside in, doesn't it? It imposes upon you demands. You must give up your property and you must share and you must work with us. And because it works from the outside in, it's unable to transform the heart. And so it breeds inside envy and corruption and bitterness and jealousy and greed. The gospel, on the other hand, works from the inside out. It transforms the heart and thus transforms the hands and how tightly they hold on to possessions. The gospel enabled this level of generosity and mutual care. What happened here is that the needs of the people around them became more influential in their lives than their commitment to their own property. Jesus' words are coming to life here. They're teaching Jesus' words, the apostles are. And you suppose they quoted Luke chapter 12. Look at Luke 12:33. It's written there on your sheet for you. It says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Huh, that sounds very familiar, right? 
Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this became the normal practice of these early Christians, that when those around them had need, they sold the possessions that they had in order to meet their needs. In other words, the power of the possessions, their possessions, in their lives had been broken. This is how strong this transformation is, what the gospel does. Jesus had warned us, didn't he? In the gospels, he had warned us. Something that is going to keep people from really following me, Jesus said, is the deceitfulness of riches. People will not want to follow Jesus because they will be lied to and they'll swallow the lie that money tells. What is that lie? You can word it a lot of different ways, don't you? But money basically tells us this lie. If you just have a little bit more of me, you'll be happy. This is a lie that it tells. Um, you can use other words. If you have more of me, you will be popular. You'll be secure. You'll be satisfied. You'll actually finally be content. If you just have a little bit more of me, you'll finally be able to rest. And you'll be at peace. You won't have to work so hard, all those jobs that you have. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't have so much anxiety when you balance your checkbook and think about the bills that are due next month. If you just had a little bit more, your life would be so much better. Well, while you're dreaming about that, you, th- you think about that, right? Uh, think about if I just had a little bit more. Do you, you see those billboards as you're driving around? The, the Powerball lottery is not up to, now up to $88 million. And of course you do. You, you think about when you're driving, what would I do with $88 million? Right? Part of your thinking, isn't it? You, but if I had, I would, give, I would give so much money away. Man, there'd be ministries around here that would just be prospering. It would be marvelous. Water Street Rescue Mission wouldn't be on the front cover of the paper for their financial ruin. And, and boy, the church, we could buy that two acres, and not just that two acres, but the next two acres, and the two acres after that. We could build our own 35-acre complex, right? Right next to your 45-acre personal retreat. You think, are you tempted to think that way? I know you're tempted to think that way because I drive around and see those billboards too. Now, what changed them and what changes us is that we follow a Lord who broke all of these rules about possessions. He had nothing, and yet he spoke about his own joy as, it was, as if it was boundless. He had, he had nothing, no place to lay his head, no uh, um, comfortable uh, living room. Um, he didn't have a pillow to lay his head on, and he promised overflowing joy. Jesus, that can't be true. You're breaking the rules. Don't you know, Jesus, that if you're really going to be happy in this world, you need a better camel, you need a bigger boat, you need more tunics, you need more sandals, you need a bigger business. He broke all of those rules. And he was the happiest person who ever walked the planet. Jesus promised joy that extends beyond the boundaries of this world. And and that joy that goes beyond the boundaries of this world is supposed to break 
all of our hold that possessions has on us. It's supposed to put everything else into perspective. John Newton tried to get this in perspective when he told us that old story. Maybe you've heard it. He's, he, it's a question, really. He says, how foolish is it the man who is riding... Well, I'll update John Newton's illustration. Driving in his car to New York City to collect his inheritance of millions of dollars. How foolish for that man to be in anguish because his car broke down. My car, my car, it broke down. I love this car. And it broke down. John Newton says, you're going to inheritance of millions. Why are you worried about this car? Outside of this world, Jesus comes, he says, I offer reconciliation to God, eternal life, forgiveness, peace that passes understanding, victory over sins, sin and, and death. And all of these things were promised to us by a penniless Savior. He lived a peasant. He died suffering ultimate poverty. He lost everything on the cross. He lost the one set of clothes that he had. He lost his reputation. He lost his comfort. And and most significantly, he lost his union with his father when he became our sin bearer on the cross. Raised to life now, he offers uh, the boundary-breaking blessings of life and forgiveness to everyone who will receive them by faith. When you grasp that, when you see that, when, you really, when it really sinks down in, you will see that Jesus himself sets you free from the tyranny of wanting more. I have a secret to tell you. It's not really a secret, but, but I'll say it to you anyway. Do you know that some of the unhappiest people on the planet are those who actually have all the things you think you need to make you happy? Uh, Jim Carrey, you know Jim Carrey, the actor. He spent part of his childhood, his family, in dire poverty. His father lost his job. For a time, he and all of his siblings were living in a van. That was their home. And when he was 15 years old, he dropped out of college to work as a janitor. He had to go, or work, dropped out of high school, rather, at 15, to uh, work as a janitor. He was not a prodigy. He, at 15, he dropped out of high school to get a job as a janitor. He had, his family needed the money. And he, he said, um, I'd have a baseball bat on my janitor cart because I was so angry, I just wanted to beat the heck out of something. Now he's got riches beyond his wildest imagination, great success, and he said this, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they will know it's not the answer. (laughs) Some of you are still thinking that you'd like to try that out for a while. I'd like to learn that lesson myself. And the reason you think that is because you're putting on possessions a weight they cannot bear. Your possessions are unable to sustain you in happiness and joy that really lasts. And, and the, these followers of Christ had figured that out. Now, by fellowship, they're sharing more than just their material wealth. They're sharing their homes. They're sharing their lives. Uh, they, they met together in homes and in temple courts, they ate together. You wonder, what did they talk about during all of these meetings, these mutually agreed upon meetings? They talked about the Jerusalem Giants and how they'd done in the game last night. No, oh, they talked about Christ. 
Here's the other great challenge of this passage. Is this passage mentions to us that the power of possessions is broken by Jesus so that they share with one another. There is another power, there's another challenge that is broken by this very passage. How many of your friendships, I wonder, with other people are really Christ-centered? You actually talk together with your friend about what it means to walk with him and, and follow him. What happens when you bravely start that conversation? You just begin this. So you say, hey, what's the Lord teaching you these days? And you, know, you're, you don't ask that question. You know why you don't ask that question sometimes? Because you're afraid of what they're going to... You're afraid that they're going to say, well, I haven't really been reading my Bible. And you haven't... All you've done is made them feel guilty. And then they're going to ask you the same question. Well... I get so tired when I sit down to read and I fall asleep. The other challenge about this is talking about Jesus in authentic ways means that you're going to have to be real and personal and you're going to have to talk about significant issues. I once saw a cartoon. Uh, it was advertising the first night of a small group meeting and the small group leader was sitting around a table with uh, uh, the rest of the small group, leader, uh, small group uh, members and he said, well, everybody, this is our first night of our small group, so let's go around before we start to get to know one another and share our gross income and our last weight in pounds. You have, this, you have this confluence of all these issues, don't you? You have fear, pride, trust issues. Every person in this room thinks that if you really knew them, if you really knew how much they fail to live up to what the new... T- every person in this room fears that if you really knew them, you would despise them. You wouldn't want to be my friend if you really, really knew the real me. And the people that aren't thinking that are the ones who are so deceived about themselves, they're self-righteous, nobody wants to be your friend anyway. Fear and pride and trust and all this is coming again into this. But again, what drove them? What drove them into this community is that Christ had broken the power in their lives of this fear and this trust and uh, these trust issues and this 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 pride. I wonder if the Jesus you know has this kind of transformative power. I wonder if the Jesus you worship is capable of changing your life like this. If not, I wonder, what did these first believers, what did they know about Jesus that you don't know about Jesus? Howard Hendricks used to tell us a story. I maybe have mentioned this before. Uh, he, uh, he repeated it, so I will too. He, uh, there were, uh, he said, picture these three guys. They're walking down the street, and one of them, she, he's dating this girl, and he sees her, and he leaves his friends, and he goes over, and he's all gaga for her. There's two guys left on the sidewalk, and they look over at this girl, and they know her a little bit, and they say, one says to his friend, what in the world does he see in her? And the answer to that question is, obviously something that you don't. What do they see in Jesus? What do they know about Jesus so that their relationship with him breaks the power of possessions in their life and breaks the power of fear and pride so that they can genuinely share and fellowship with one another and love one another. I wonder how many how many people you share this level of 
fellowship with. See, growth groups are supposed to foster this sort, these sort of relationships, give them an incubator where they can grow. Maybe not during the meetings themselves, you don't express this all the time, but at some point in time. You know, if you, if you commit yourself to this, you'll find something that's true about a loving church. You'll discover that the strength of an organization is not measured by how much you get out of it, but how much you give to it. That's the emphasis here. It's, it's counterculture. It's what our Lord practiced. The way that most of us think, or the, the most of us are trained to think about how to find a church is we do it based on what it gives us. How many niche and individual programs, how many ministries and activities are geared to my life, my circumstances, my situation? How much am I going to get out of this church? Do you know how I think experiences the pull of that question the most? I think the people in the world who experience the pull of that temptation the most are the parents of teenagers. Now, I don't have teenagers, so I, I want to be careful. But I think I understand this pressure a little bit. Your kids are at a crucial stage in their life. And you want them to love church. You want them to make friends there. You want them to think that church is cool. So uh, they need a church that they love and that has everything that they want in music and preaching and youth group and programs and retreats and activities. You don't want them to falter. You want them to love a church. So you take them to give them a church that has everything that they want, every program that they could take advantage of. I wonder, though, if you should think differently about that question. As if this is an opportunity to teach them the truth of what Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. That there's deeper satisfaction to be found in sacrificing for others than in being served. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. You will be happier if you give your life away than if you demand that other people fill your life. Show them that. Not as a formula or as a guarantee that that they'll be fine and that they'll never turn from Christ, but at least you will be giving them reality. Because that's the way the world actually works. It's not as centered around them as fast food advertisers want to make them believe. Now, this is a loving church. Now, we've spent a long time on these first two characteristics. We're going to spend less time in the last two. I'll just mention them really Third, this is a worshiping church. This passage describes a worshiping church. They break bread, probably a reference to eating together, uh, the Lord's Supper included in that. They pray. According to verse 47, they are praising God, formally in the temple and informally in one another's homes. I've said this before, it's just mentioned here. Uh, We'll we'll look at it again, and I'll need to remind you because I need to remind myself uh, In the book of Acts, God does nothing except in response to the prayers of his people. God is always at work in the church as the church prays. No church that ignores prayer should expect God to work in any significant way in that congregation. This is a worshiping church. Now, characteristic number four, it's an evangelizing church. An evangelizing church. It's a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church and an evangelizing church. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. We're going to talk next week, Lord willing, about these signs and wonders and acts. 
I'm going to read about one of them in chapter 3. These miracles provided a platform for the preaching, for the witnessing about Jesus, and it resulted in reverence among the people. This is a church that is not so insular that they forgot their task about witnessing about Jesus. It is Two things are happening here. People are attracted to them, one, because they love each other. Oh my goodness, to find a group of people, diverse race, age, a class to find a group of people like that that actually loves one another is an astounding miracle. They're attracted to that, and the people are also attracted because the, the apostles are continuing to proclaim this message that Jesus is Lord. You must turn to Him. You must believe in Him. So this is a an evangelizing church, and the text says the Lord, verse forty seven, added to their number daily those who were being saved. God at work. So this is the summary here. What is the church for? What's it about? It's to learn and love and serve and worship and testify about Jesus. This is the ideal. What we're going to discover, oh, there's good news. There's good news in the book of Acts. They do these things marvelously. It's beautiful to see. And what we're going to also discover is that they're not a perfect church either. That should encourage you. should encourage you, especially if you deal with all of our imperfections. That, that we need not be a perfect church in order to pursue all of these things, in order to express all of these things. Um, I, I receive in the mail, uh, once or twice a year, magazines called Church Building Magazine. And it's sponsored by architectural firms. Lots of architectural firms all around the country pay money to advertise in this magazine that they send. Uh, church building magazine. And inside are beautiful church buildings. So they're trying to get us to build uh, a uh, Baptist Taj Mahal. They're, they're trying to get us to build this beautiful building and the, here comes the magazines. And, and it's astounding. Some, some of the architecture that they do, they, they build churches... And they, they rehab old buildings downtown and build these, these marvelous facilities. They're, they're well-decorated, they're, they're uh, functional, they're warm, they're clever, they're very useful. You know what's interesting about all these churches in these magazines, all the pictures of them, they're absolutely empty of people. There's nobody at all in these beautiful buildings. Now, the reason, I, I mean, they want you to see the architecture and they want you to see the color scheme and people would just get in the way. But if I understand Acts 2 correctly, by cutting out the people, they're, they're taking out what truly makes a church beautiful. It's the work of the Spirit that unites us together to praise God and to lean on His Son and to share our lives with one another and share about Him to those who don't know Him. That, brothers and sisters, is a beautiful church. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you with thanksgiving because you uh, tell us the truth in your word and you tell us about what the Spirit does in a group of, of people and, and you set down these, these priorities for us. Uh, Father, we, we have much to be in awe of and to reverence would you make us be in reverence of you like these observers of the first church? We're, we're observing them too. We want to be in reverence of you because of how you transform people 
But we want to be more than just in awe. We want to be transformed. Oh, God, help us to be, to grow in this, our love for one another. That you would break the power of our possessions. That you would break the power of fear and pride in our lives. Lord, it is, it is our desire that you would add to us those who are being saved. Transform our community and strengthen our proclamation, Father, to glorify your great Son. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.